developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome to the Documentary in One and to the 16th new episode of our 2020 season. In our previous podcast, we brought you part one of Polonium and the Piano Player, and so to part two of that story. As one of the biggest police investigations in British history gets underway, Derek Conlon is astonished to learn that he too has been poisoned. But that's just the beginning of his problems. Produced by Robert Mulhern for Sky News Storycast and narrated by Diana Magne, this is part two of Polonium and the Piano Player. And a quick note before listening, the former KGB agents, Andrei Lugovoy and Dmitry Kovtun, deny any involvement in the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, as does the Russian state. It's even worse in the bus than it is in the bar, where everything is uh, drunk and shouting and screaming, and the windows are steamy from the rain, and the hot dog sellers are dragging out the machines, and smoke filled air. It's a strange time of the night in Oxford Street at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know. This is episode two of Polonium and the Piano Player. I'm Diana Magni. At the end of episode one, we left Derek Conlon as he was making his way home on the night of the poisoning, eight hours after he unknowingly drank from the same radioactive cup as ex-Russian agent Alexander Litvinenko. But we're now going to fast forward two and a half weeks. It's the stuff of a Cold War thriller to the evening of November the 19th, 2006. Documents passed under the table. Derek is at home. He's not at work tonight and is half-watching the news. Alexander Litvinenko a is few a days ago, when he got the bus to the Millennium Hotel, he found the piano bar boarded up. And there was a, a very tall policeman, and there was a yellow and blue sticker tape across the two doors, you know. I said, hi, I said, I work here. Um, I, got a, I play piano here. And he said, well, you don't work here tonight, you know. And I said, um, oh, why, what's happened? He said, there's been an incident. I said, oh, I wasn't told. And he kind of looked at me as if, like, well, why would anybody tell you anyway? So um, I headed back home and um, I called my agent and I said, uh, I'm not working there tonight, the bar's closed. And he said, oh, why? And I said, I don't know. And he said, let me find out about it. So he's sitting here waiting for his agent to call when a news report on TV catches his attention. By half past four, Litvinenko is at the Millennium Hotel on Grosvenor Square for a business meeting. With it came up that um, a man had been involved in, I don't know, what, it wasn't an incident, but um, at the Millennium Hotel, in, in a bar at the Millennium Hotel. On the 17th of November, he was transferred to University College Hospital and placed under armed guard. Derek listens as the report describes how a man named Alexander Litvinenko was in critical condition in University College Hospital, or UCH, in King's Cross, just down the road from Derek's flat. That on November the 2nd, 2006, this man had been taken to a hospital in North London, suffering from severe stomach pains and vomiting. At first, the doctors had thought it was food poisoning, then leukaemia. They came across that nobody seemed to know what was going on, basically. But when the man's condition worsened, 
He was transferred to UCH, where he was admitted under the name Edwin Carter. They were saying different things, Russian spy, uh, dissident, double agent. Uh, who was this guy? You know? Someone didn't want Mr. Litvinenko to obtain them. It was reported that the man worked for MI6, the UK's secret service agency, and that Alexander Litvinenko had checked into hospital under his UK pseudonym, Edwin Carter, to disguise his identity. Whatever he'd done, he'd clearly stepped on some pretty big toes and someone wanted him dead. Alexander Litvinenko made a lot of enemies in Russia. He was an outspoken critic of the Putin regime and he was also an outspoken critic of the FSB, former KGB, where he worked for many years. So in a sense, any group inside the former KGB could have decided to have a go at him. For more than two weeks, Alexander Litvinenko's illness had baffled the UK's leading medical experts and scientists, who now believed the ex-Russian agent was poisoned. He was a fit, uh, strong, handsome man uh, just uh, when I saw him last a month ago. And now he's like an old man. Needless to say, the British government and Prime Minister Tony Blair I am about to treated claims that one of their spies had been poisoned very seriously, Alex Rossi. The other thing that's irrefutable is that he was on, in some shape or form, the payroll of MI6, advising them about links between organised corruption and the security services in Russia. I think would make him, in the Kremlin's eyes, uh, an active combatant. Scotland Yard sent a specialist unit to Alexander Litvinenko's hospital bedside. Using a translator, detectives recorded everything the former Russian agent could remember before he'd fallen ill. Who had he met and where? And why he believed that the Russian leader Vladimir Putin was personally responsible for his poisoning. To try and create some leads, a photograph of Litvinenko lying stricken in his hospital bed was released to the press. He looks terrible. He looks like a ghost. His, all of his hair the image gone. shocked the world, and it shocked Derek. It's of a, a bald-headed man, uh, jaundice-looking, yellow skin, staring into the abyss. By now, it appeared inevitable that Alexander Litvinenko, the former Russian secret agent, husband and father of three children, who'd grown up in the closed world of Soviet communism, was going to die a very public death. Three weeks after the attack in the Millennium Hotel's piano bar, his heart failed. We're sorry to announce that Alexander Litvinenko died at University College Hospital at 9.21 on the 23rd of November 2006. Like millions watching around the world, Derek was disturbed by the death and by the suggestion of Russian state involvement. Is now an ongoing investigation. But what happened next propelled the UK government into full-blown crisis mode. Our thoughts are with Mr Litvinenko's family. Thank you. Because just hours after Alexander Litvinenko died of a heart attack, the poison that had killed him was finally identified. To get into the body, the polonium would have had to be eaten or inhaled. Polonium-210 a uranium-enriched radioactive substance. Before spreading around the body through the bloodstream. One of the most lethal substances on Earth. It is a sophisticated poison, which is, is, is only in the possession of the KGB. Mr Speaker. With the country on high alert, Prime Minister Tony Blair called a crisis meeting 
where scientists in the mold of Professor of Physics Philip Walker gave further alarming insight into the nuclear poison's immense power. It's been used essentially as a fuse for an atomic bomb. I consider it to be, in some sense, the ideal poison. If you manage to poison someone after a few years, it's all decayed away and you can't exhume the body and find the, the poison that's left behind, as you could with any chemical poison. So it, it's very clever, disappearing poison. In polonium-210, the agents Lugovoy and Koftun had been given the perfect weapon. The problem was in the execution. But I don't think for one moment they knew what they were handling, because had they, they wouldn't have handled it in such a lackadaisical uh, manner. I have to assume that the reason behind using it was um, that they thought that perhaps they'd have gone away with it and it wouldn't have been detected, but it would have told the people who needed to be told, you know, the Kremlin has an extremely long arm. Specialist crime units are now combing the Millennium Hotel in Mayfair. And back in his flat in North London, Derek is continuing to follow the case. Obviously, I worked there, so and I wasn't working, so I, I took an interest. It's been nearly a month since Derek unknowingly drank from the same radioactive cup as Alexander Litvinenko, but he still has no idea he's being slowly poisoned. And again, it just they just words got into my head, and um, not, I'm not taking it on board. You know, think well, this has nothing to do with me anyway. But then Derek travels to Lincolnshire to stay with friends, and he gets the first indication that he may actually have a role to play in this story bigger than anything he could ever have imagined. And what would you say to members of the public who may have come into contact with this Polonium 210? They made the announcement that anybody who was at the hotel to uh, report to the UCH uh, hospital just to be tested. I thought, well, I was there, so I better go back down to London and get myself checked out. So. As Derek sets off for London, one of the biggest police investigations ever conducted in the UK, involving hundreds of officers, was getting underway. The authorities have revealed that more than 300 people have contacted a special National Health Service helpline. The attack was now being treated like a public health emergency. Against this backdrop, Derek Conlon strolls into the reception of University College Hospital in London the same hospital Alexander Litvinenko went into and never left. I saw a lady sitting behind the desk and I went over to her and told her my name and why I was here. And she took my name and, she, and then she went away for a while and when she came back she told me to go on upstairs and, and just wait to be called. And then this lady came out from behind the door and said, um, come on through and we, we'll do some uh, testing procedures or whatever she called it at the time. So I went, okay. They took some blood, obviously. Then you test your reflexes, like with a little hammer, and then breathing. But then they asked me if I had stomach cramps or leg pain or muscle pains. And, and then we did an eye test, um, just like, a, like a, an optician looking at a wall and trying, what can you see, you know? And that was that, you know? After his examination, Derek gets ready to return to Lincolnshire. But less than two hours later, his mobile rings and he's told to come and get his results. But not from the hospital, but for some reason from the Millennium Hotel. I had nothing to think about, worry about, fear, nothing. Um, I, for these results, I'm just going for it, basically. It's just a general, make sure that 
you're fine. And then uh, an incision is made from round about here, um, uh, right down the length of the front of the body. It's around this time that a team of experts conduct an autopsy on Alexander Litvinenko's body. They'll be looking for evidence of polonium-210, the radioactive substance Mr Litvinenko's family described as a tiny nuclear bomb. A post-mortem build as the most dangerous of its kind ever to be attempted in the Western world. Pathologists were forced to wear not one but two layers of protective clothing and supplied with a constant stream of filtered air. When the results came back, they confirmed that the former Russian spy was indeed the victim of acute radiation poisoning that had resulted in massive organ failure. Knowing what they knew, it's little wonder then that the three medical experts who greeted Derek in the lobby of the hotel were so on edge. They asked who I was and I told them who I was and they said, oh, OK, you come up first. The four of us get into the elevator and... I'm having a little banter to say, hey guys, doing everything okay, and, you know, and they're very serious and there's no kind of happy people. So I'm okay, but I'm still, you know, I wonder what, what really what all this is about. When they leave the elevator, Derek is brought to a meeting room. So um, we went into the room, they, they sat and they had three chairs at a, at a, at a desk and, and a chair in front for me. And I said, so, everything okay? And they said, well, we've been to your tests and we've, um, we've discovered that your levels of radiation poisoning are, are pretty high, you know. No, what? What are you talking about? The doctors can't answer Derek's questions, only that he's ingested one of the most dangerous substances known to man. And they said, well, you're up in the, in the top five people who've been poisoned. I said, I don't understand why, because I wasn't there when it happened, you know. Derek barely has time to process what he's being told when he's brought back downstairs where the police are waiting to question him. So they said, what do I do in the hotel? What time do I get there? Uh, where are you from? Um, just a general background on who you are and what time you play, when do you play, what days, what hours, that type of stuff, you know. And I, I just said, I turned up and um, I had a a cup of coffee and I sat down in this place and I played the piano and sang all night. Considering Derek had just learned he'd been poisoned by something once used to detonate an atomic bomb, this line of questioning does not feel right. But this is a murder investigation in all but name and detectives from Scotland Yard's Counter-Terrorism Command are working relentlessly to retrace what's now an international radioactive trail. But the UK intelligence community and Scotland Yard and now working around the clock to try and find clues related to the attack. When he returns to his flat in North London, Derek tries to come to terms with the fact that he's been poisoned and if he has any part to play in this deepening international crisis. This real-life spy thriller is now a 24-hour news story. Alexander Litvinenko was granted political asylum in Britain six years ago. He claims to know some of the darkest secrets of Russia's past and had been prepared to speak out. And the details of Alexander Litvinenko's secret life in the UK have now taken on new meaning. How Litvinenko enjoyed a close relationship with the Russian dissident Boris Berezovsky. There have been suggestions that Litvinenko may have been in the offices owned by his friend and sponsor, the billionaire Boris Berezovsky on Down Street. And how both men were trying to undermine the Russian government. And I started kind of believing that um, 
well, I have been poisoned, you know, and I have got whatever's happened to me. And um, there's more to this than meets the eye. So you have the the uh, not knowing side and you have the actual physical damaged side as well. But it was the emergence of an Italian security consultant called Mario Scaramella that really unnerved Derek. According to Scaramella, Litvinenko had, in the days before his death, been preparing to leak highly sensitive information about the Russian government. Well, it was a, a four pages, two emails, uh, mentioning uh, some names, some circumstances. Some... Professor Mario Scaramello described how he met Mr. Litvinenko in this London sushi bar. Mario Scaramello had even warned Alexander Litvinenko that his life was in danger just before the former Russian spy met with Lugovoy and Koftun in the Millennium Hotel. He was included in the list of names uh, under danger. Derek wasn't much bothered with any of that, just that Scaramella was now considered a suspect in Alexander Litvinenko's murder. Why? Because the nuclear poison, polonium-210, had been discovered not only in the sushi bar where the men had met on the day of the attack, but also in Scaramella's urine. It was now clear to Derek why police asked him the questions that they did. If Scaramella was a suspect because polonium had been found in his urine, then where did that leave him? <sighs> yeah. You, you are, I guess, in a way, a suspect as well, you know, in these, in these cases, which is a kind, of a, a kind of turning point for me in the whole thing, you know. It was just a matter of time before detectives came to question Derek again. So they came around and um, two detectives and invited them in and like made some tea. Nearly a week on from Litvinenko's death and a month after the attack, Polonium-210 was turning up in more and more London locations. So far, 12 locations have tested positive for radiation. A list the Home Secretary's warned will grow. The government was coming under increasing pressure to find the assassins. Understandably, Scotland Yard wasn't going to send a couple of trainees to question a key witness. They would send special agents, debriefed by Alexander Litvinenko, just before he died. The questions were basically the same as the uh, lady at the Millennium asked me, um, what did you do time-wise and um, what were your habits when you went there, that type of thing. I asked them a couple of questions about how I got it, you know, and um, one of them was kind of... Uh, I wouldn't worry about it. He said, I've, I've been sitting with the man, so if anybody's going to get it, I'm going to get it, you know. I don't know whether that was to kind of allay my worries or whatever, or just, um, I don't know, or shut up. I was given a name and a number and told to speak to nobody anyway because there's a, a, a trial, an investigation going ahead. So um, if I thought of anything, to let them know... Um, the detectives left. On December the 7th, 2006, two weeks after his death, Alexander Litvinenko, who had converted to Islam after moving to the UK, was buried with Muslim rites in Highgate Cemetery in London. To protect mourners, he was buried in a coffin lined with lead. The Russian agents and childhood friends, Andrei Lugovoy and Dmitry Kovtun, were now persons of interest in the investigation. The story had become an international news sensation. Everywhere, it seems, but Russia, 
where Moscow correspondent Alex Rossi listened to a very different narrative. President Putin has repeatedly denied any involvement in the death of Mr. Litvinenko. Today, a member of Russia's parliament... The general mechanism that would be would be that this is a, a kind of black ops operation by the Brits to try and sully the name of Russia, to try and sully the name of the Russian president, uh, Vladimir Putin. And that's what it was about, and the Russian public shouldn't be deceived by, by any of this. And in the middle of all this, Derek, who's yet to develop any physical symptoms, goes back to work when the Millennium Hotel opens a new piano bar. Outside, obviously, the world's media were, were camped out, you know, across the road at the, uh, in the Memorial Park and on the pavement outside as well. It's now an open secret that Millennium Hotel staff and their resident piano player were exposed to the nuclear poison Polonium-210. People stand looking for space, even in the back of the hotel, on the stairs waiting for the chefs to come out. And, you know, it's uh, kind of um, under siege, so to speak, you know. Once inside, specialists from the Health Protection Agency, or HPA, met Derek and other staff members. They were told they would have to submit daily urine samples. The advice was to fill like a litre and a half bottle with urine because with polonium-210, it secretes from your body through that and through perspiration over a period of between 6 and 12 months. So it actually leaves your body physically, but the damage that it does to your body obviously is done initially. Just a few weeks ago, people were lining up to listen to Derek play the piano. Now people are turning up night after night just so they can stand and stare. It was strange when that kind of focus is on you, you know. And it's, it was only certain people who used to go to the hotel, but they would go to the hotel to see you. Not to listen to you anymore, it was more kind of stay away, no shaking hands, and, you know, you're contagious. It was out of curiosity, really. Is he glowing in the dark, that type of stuff, you know, so... Uh... Remember, Derek still has no idea how he ingested the radioactive poison until one afternoon in mid-December 2006, nearly six weeks on from the attack, when he arrives to the hotel to find the police waiting for him. I had two big sessions with some policewoman, um, maybe, I don't the anti-terrorists or whatever they would be, you know, you don't ask. It is during this meeting that Derek discovers for the first time how both he and Alexander Litvinenko came to be poisoned and how his life would forever be intertwined with that of the Russian spy. I said, how did I get it? You know, I wasn't here at half past four, and, um, and I wasn't, I didn't do it. I just had a, a cappuccino, and, and she said, uh, the dishwasher was broken, and that uh, you drank from a cup that was uh, had poison in it, you know? Alone in his flat late at night, Derek now finds himself haunted by that press image of Alexander Litvinenko dying on his hospital bed. Friends said in the end he looked like a concentration camp survivor, but said he died... I'm not a mathematician, but you're trying to figure out, what well, that happened to him in 23 days on that dose, and you're working out the kind of, if I divide that by my dosage, then combine that with a picture, and you think, is that going to happen to me? He was brutally murdered by... Uh, but then something really peculiar happens. Strange noises start coming from Derek's TV set. Understandably, Derek is freaked out. It came with a kind of crackling noise, and then it went 
and went and stopped. I do have a vivid imagination writing songs and stuff, but this is a kind of, no, this is actually happening. Derek knows that every security resource has been brought in to try and catch the killers. Detectives are using the most advanced technology that you can imagine in a Europe-wide manhunt. And when you take all of that into account, it would be unusual for Derek, who's tested positive for polonium-210, not to be under some kind of police surveillance. The phone would ring and then you'd pick it up and there were just little clicks and there'd be no answer. And then are they watching me as well? You know, I, I could be anybody, you know, and I believe that they wouldn't obviously tell you that we're looking into you or whatever, but everybody is a suspect, you know, in, in any situation. Um, and everybody has to be investigated and either eliminated or prosecuted. Then Derek has a more sinister thought. He knows he's one of a group of people who are in the piano bar of the Millennium Hotel on the day of the attack. That makes him a person of interest in the eyes of not just the British police, but also the people who wanted Litvinenko dead. He was fighting against the evil forces in Russia, against the KGB, and, uh, and he became a victim of uh, rancorness and revenge. He was brutally murdered I don't know by, what these people uh, are thinking. And, uh, you know, you read in newspapers, anybody who talks about bad about the government, the Russian government, you know, we, we will get you type of thing. And I know I'm nobody, but, um, you know, parts of the story have been publicised and have been out there, you know. Um, and I think all, a, a culmination of that, the police, the slight paranoia about the, the TV, the poisoning, and people calling you and asking questions. And and you're suddenly in this kind of, um, I won't say a world you don't want to be in, but you, you are in the middle of something as well, you know. In just a matter of weeks, the poisoning of an ex-Russian spy in a London hotel was now breathing new life into serious international tensions. And there's lots of things been happening in Russia which actually cast a cloud over President Putin's success in binding the place together. At the same time, UK counter-terrorism experts had received a tip-off that the source of the radioactive polonium was a nuclear facility in the Russian town of Sarov, a town which required authorization just to travel to, and where Russia produced its first nuclear bomb during the reign of Joseph Stalin. Meanwhile, back in North London, Derek received a call telling him that two government scientists were on their way to his flat. They told me they were coming to check what I was wearing and to see was the uh, place contaminated or whatever as well, you know. But when the scientists turned up, they whipped out the kind of equipment more at home in a science fiction movie than in Derek's one-bedroom flat. They, they fired up um, almost like a, like a big remote control with a, with a counter on it. Um, they went from ceiling to floor, left to right, um, each room. So they're going through everything, there was nothing happening. I thought, okay, this is fine. Uh, what were you wearing that night? And um, so uh, my suit was hanging up. Um, I said, just my suit. They checked it and I went, it crackled, you know? And I, okay, what, what does that mean? Okay, and they wouldn't tell me anything. And I said, what else did you have with you that, that day? And I said, just my case. And, Case crackled. And, okay. And um, the drum machine, the microphone, 
and some papers, you know, and a, a little phone at the time. So I said, so what have I got to do? And they, they took away the case and they took away the old drum machine. And I said, what about my suit, you know? And they said, to put it in the, in the dry cleaners. I went, really? He said, yeah, just a little wash off. And that was it. It was, and then, well, thanks for your time. And okay, is that it? And they were off, you know. Derek did what he was told. He brought his suit to the dry cleaners. This would be the last he would hear from these government scientists. The only thing they recommended me to do was go to the dry cleaners with, with a suit. It was now Christmas 2006, almost two months on from the release of the nuclear poison. Derek continued handing his urine samples over to the Health Protection Agency and playing the piano in the Millennium Hotel, the scene of the attack. By January 2007, the Russian agents, Lugovoy and Koftun, were no longer just persons of interest in the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko. They were the prime suspects. Lugovoy, the bodyguard and businessman, was identified as the lead assassin. But as long as he was in Russia, the UK authorities couldn't touch him. Just to question him, they needed the cooperation of the Kremlin. And that was something they'd so far been denied. But one person who didn't need that kind of authorization was Alex Rossi. In January 2007, he traveled through the winter snow to meet the UK's most wanted man at his gated residence outside of Moscow. You've been named by some sources as a prime suspect. Did you kill Alexander Litvinenko? Using a translator, Lugovoy denies any part in the attack. In fact, he would go on to say that he himself was targeted with the nuclear substance polonium-210 and that it had actually been planted by his enemies at locations that he'd visited in London, like Arsenal's football stadium. Lugovoy said Alexander Litvinenko had tried to recruit him as a British spy, and that along with Dmitry Kovtun, now out of hospital in Hamburg having tested positive himself for polonium-210, the two former KGB agents were being scapegoated by British authorities. There does seem to be circumstantial evidence... It is now well over two months since Derek was poisoned with the polonium-210 that killed Alexander Litvinenko. But despite ingesting a deadly dose of this nuclear poison, he had yet to suffer any ill effects. Then, all of a sudden, his eyesight begins to fade. For some reason, it felt as though my eyebrows were covering half my eyesight, you know, I why can I, I... I could see, obviously, but everything was like... You could suddenly see half, you know? Everything seemed to be kind of dark on the top and light on the bottom, you know? So I thought, this is not right. Derek's journey into the twilight world of espionage now feels complete, and he was slowly beginning to realise that in this world, suspicion trumped concern. According to the organisation, the Committee to Protect Journalists, Russia is the third deadliest country in the world to operate in. In the greater scheme of things, his health didn't compare with an international crisis. The killing of the editor of the Russian Forbes magazine. Stressed and having been told to speak to no one, Derek makes an appointment to see the one person in the world he knows he can trust, his GP. So I went in and um, I don't know how to start this conversation, you know, it was kind of a bit kind of weird. Um, so I sat down and said, um, 
I think my exact words were, I don't know where to begin with this. And then I just burst out crying. And I couldn't stop, you know. And I thought, jeez, what do I been? <laughs> Shut up, Derek, you know. So anyway, he gave me a couple of minutes and I put myself together. And I said, sorry about that. I said, um, I've had a kind of weird last couple of months, you know, and explained what had happened. And he, he was kind of a, wow. And he, obviously he knew about Alexander Lifanego, the poisoning. And I said, I'm, I'm dealing with HPA and they have all the records. A small backstreet doctor's surgery in North London is the last place you'd expect the victim of a Russian radioactive hit to go to for treatment. Radioactive poisonings are pretty uncommon in the UK. And because the Health Protection Agency had Derek's confidential test results, his doctor had very little to go on. So he did a blood tests and blood pressure stuff. And first time ever, I've always been fit and healthy all my life. He put me on blood pressure tablets to see would that do anything, you know, help me out. And three or four days later, I had to start and say these, bang, it was daylight again, you know. His doctor guessed that a spike in blood pressure had impacted Derek's eyesight. Brought on by what, he couldn't say. Derek, he took it as a sign he didn't have long to live. And increasingly paranoid that he was being watched not only by the UK authorities, but by the Russians too, Derek decided to try and leave the country. And I got a phone call to go to do a job in Barbados. It had got to that stage, not that I was going to die there and then on the spot, but the way I was thinking at the time was, oh, this could be the last job I ever do. Derek accepted the job and jumped on the next flight to Barbados. He didn't tell the UK authorities. Anyway, they were now trying to extradite the Russian agents, Lugovoy and Koftun, back to the UK for questioning. CCTV images from the Millennium Hotel in Mayfair had emerged. Images that would confirm how, on the day of the poisoning, both agents used a toilet in the hotel, heavily contaminated with polonium-210. It had also been discovered that the nuclear poison had been poured down a sink in Dmitry Koftun's hotel room. None of this, however, made any difference to Andrei Lugovoy. In fact, his popularity was on the rise in Russia, where the former military man was now dreaming of a career in politics. The crisis between the UK and Russia that had grown out of the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko deepened. In May 2007, Russia refused that request from the UK to extradite the agents Lugovoy and Koftun on charges of murdering the ex-KGB spy. The aftermath of Litvinenko's poisoning saw four Russian diplomats expelled from London. Then in July, nine months on from the nuclear poisoning, four British ones were then expelled from Moscow. The UK and Russia engaged in the tit-for-tat expulsion of diplomats. David Miliband said Russia's behaviour was completely unacceptable. By this stage, Derek didn't know if anyone in the UK, which, by the way, was now being led by Prime Minister Gordon Brown, noticed that he was missing. Or did they even care? There were bigger concerns, like shoring up their multi-billion pound trading relationship with Russia. Trade ties between the two countries are worth a hundred billion pounds. At the same time, Marina Litvinenko, Alexander's wife, set about securing a public inquiry into the murder of her husband. I know my husband was killed, and somebody has to be responsible for this. I want people to see these facts about this, to bring people truth about what happened to my husband. 
How must Marina Litvinenko have felt then when in late 2007, Russian President Vladimir Putin appointed Andrei Lugovoy to parliament? Far from being outcast, the prime suspect in Alexander Litvinenko's death appeared to have been rewarded. And one of the fringe benefits of him becoming an MP was that he could never be tried for Litvinenko's murder in Russia. Not long after this, in 2008, Russia went to war with Georgia over a land dispute. It was around now that Derek started to hear from old colleagues from the Millennium Hotel. Colleagues who spoke about near-death experiences brought about by Polonium 210. She lost all her hair and her teeth, you know, and weird stuff, you know. Well, he drove home, you know, and was on a steering wheel. That chap had a heart attack when he was 35, you know. In one such conversation, Derek was shocked when he learned what had happened to his music kit from the night of the attack, the microphone and drum machine taken from his home by the two government scientists. Yeah, my um, case was buried in copper um, microphone and uh, the old drum machine was, was probably in there as well. So just that they t- took that, that was gone. Like I say, the only thing that was left was, was the, uh, the suit. The piano was destroyed, um, piano stool. PA system was taken away. I don't know about you, but if the microphone that you'd sung into on the night you'd unwittingly been poisoned was made so radioactive by your own breath that it had to be buried in protective casing, well, what toll must it have been taking on Derek's body? Derek was now left to wonder how it was that others exposed to the poison had fallen ill, but that he hadn't, despite the fact that his radiation readings were among the highest. Not so long ago, Derek believed he only had a short time to live, but now the months were turning into years. Derek was trying not to look too far ahead, and while he was developing some minor health complaints, he was at least still alive. It's just the weirdest thing. I was a funny shape, you know, and I started to buy clothes that were kind of big sizes, you know, and uh, a kind of cramps, and um, like I say, have a glass of water or... Um, if I drank a can of coke, I probably would have exploded, you know. By 2016, Derek had found his way back to the Caribbean, this time to the tiny tropical island of Anguilla, where just like 10 years before, he got a job playing in a hotel. And they took me over to Anguilla in this posh speedboat, because it's the only way to get in there, you know. But for Derek, the legacy of the attack at the Millennium Hotel had been burning a slow fuse. It is a hallmark of the nuclear poison Polonium-210, that it can stalk your every step, long after it's been ingested. And now, on the Caribbean island of Anguilla, the effect finally kicked in. Um, one evening I had a night off on a Sunday, and uh, I microwaved a spaghetti and a sauce, and as soon as I'd eaten it, the stomach starts bloating and bloating and bloating and bloating and bloating. I thought, my God, it's like someone's pumping me up, you know? But um, I made it to the bathroom and just the bathroom was destroyed. I collapsed and smashed my head in the ground. I was out cold for God knows how long. The doctor came in, took one look at me, put on a blood pressure gauge and said, oh my God, get into the hospital quick, you know. And at this stage I was in and out of consciousness and um, that was the last thing I remember for three days. I, I was out cold. Derek is rushed to hospital, and only three days later does he come round. Lord Jesus Christ, Redeemer of the world, you have shown it the... I came through, and there's a priest standing beside me with a rosary beads. 
Yeah. He said, welcome back. And I said, who are you? you know? I didn't know who, what was going on. And I looked down, I had these kind of compression tights on and there's blood on my hands, I, but I couldn't move. And they said, uh, you can't go anywhere, you need a blood transplant, uh, uh, transfusions. So uh, it turns out the, uh, there's a massive ulcer in my stomach. Um, yeah, they erupted basically, and um, it had been in there for so long. Derek knows that polonium 210 attacks your vital organs, sowing the seeds for future illness and death. But because it's a disappearing poison, by 2016, any trace of it would have left his body, though not necessarily the effects of the polonium itself. So uh, I signed myself out and took a cab back to the resort. And it was just nice to sit in the shower. And it was a really big shower, just get clean, first of all. But um, when I went um, to put on a pair of pants, they, they fell off me. I went, what? And I lost almost three stone. You know, it was just whatever that stuff was inside me was just, I don't know, it was horrible stuff, you know. Um, I equate it to the poison and, you know, to the fact that it's always been a bother. Keen not to be given the last rites again and believing he was in need of the kind of medical care he couldn't get on a tiny tropical island, Derek returned to the UK. And the first thing he did was make an appointment to see his GP in North London the doctor he went to for help more than 10 years earlier. I told him exactly what happened. I got all the medical information, gave it to him. When he ran some tests, Derek was taken aback by the findings. I had perfect blood pressure. Uh, didn't need tablets. I had perfect eyesight. You know, it's kind of, what? It just, um, everything, everything changed. Everything changed so much, you know. It's March 2020, and Derek Conlon walks into a music studio in South London. He's here to work on a new album. After his health check in 2016, Derek decided to settle in the UK. Because of the poisoning, he now undergoes rigorous medicals every six months. But right now, he's in good health. Once Derek left the UK in 2007, he never did hear again from the British authorities and he never did get to the bottom of whether he was under surveillance or not. In the years since the attack, Derek has mostly chosen to avoid Alexander Litvinenko's story. Some people are probably different than me and say, I want to find out what's going on, you know, but um, it's, it was a case of just get on with it, you know. Today, he lives in the small town of Boston in Lincolnshire on the east coast of England. It's quiet, off the beaten track, you might say a good place to escape all things Russian and poisoning related. By 2016, Alexander's wife Marina did finally get her public inquiry. Um, Marina, this news today is rather unexpected or...? Of course it was expected. Which concluded that the Russian agents, Lugovoy and Koftun, almost certainly poisoned her husband and that the assassination was, in all likelihood, carried out with the knowledge of Russian President Vladimir Putin. A little bit nervous, but then you, one day, this news will come. In quiet moments, Derek has tried to make sense of his place in all of this. Just an ordinary person caught up in an extraordinary crisis. Lately, however, he's been struck by another remarkable coincidence in his life and the life of Alexander Litvinenko. 
that makes him believe their lives were destined to intertwine, to collide, really, not only in the bar of the Millennium Hotel, but here, too, in the quiet seaside town of Boston, Lincolnshire. It's where Derek lives, and where, as fate would have it, Alexander Litvinenko had once lived, too, and where he'd written two books. A place where both men had looked for a bit of peace and quiet, a sanctuary from the strange worlds they found themselves in. Boston is such a small little place in the middle of Lincolnshire, in the middle of nowhere, to be quite honest with you, and uh, to find out that he actually stayed here and, and you know, wrote these books, uh, it seems to be a, I don't know, it's, it's a, it, my life seems to have intertwined with um, his life um, and all over because of a, a cup of coffee in, in a hotel and it's, it's almost like fate. Hopefully there won't be any more little shocks coming up, but uh, who knows? You've been listening to the documentary in one and to part two of Polonium and the Piano Player. Narrated by Diana Magne, it was a Sky News Storycast production by Robert Mulhern. Until next time, thanks for listening.